All right, let's pray and we'll, uh, we'll jump right in. If you have a Bible and want to find Romans 7, that's where we're going to find ourselves. Lord, we love you and we thank you for what you're doing in our world. We thank you for what you're doing in this community. We thank you for what you're doing as we make our way towards Easter and remember your great once-for-all sacrifice that changes absolutely everything. And so now as we open our eyes to see what you've said, we want to know what you're saying in our world, to our family, to our life, to this church, to our city. What are the things that are on your heart, Lord Jesus, and how can we step into what you're already doing? We ask you to guide us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I, I got back Tuesday. Uh, Steve Marshman's teaching last, last week was fantastic. I got to listen to it on the plane. I got home uh, on Tuesday after a week in Romania. And I just want to let you know it may not seem obvious to you that Jesus is changing lives. We live in the Northwest, and people are a little more reserved. And it seems like, man, I want to see more people experience life in Jesus, but it doesn't happen as often as I'd like. Just a, a couple of stories of what happened in a town called Cebu. It's about 150, 200,000 people in this town. One event we held was in a village. If you were here last week, I did a video, a little thing, from that event. It's, it was on the heart of one church. The pastor's name is Cornell. And they started a church in a gypsy village. You may not understand the dynamics. All over Europe, there's a people group called the gypsies who live in these other countries, but they have their own identity. And mostly they're treated like second-class humans. That's just a fact. Well, there's a gypsy village. Well, this guy Cornell is not a gypsy, but he got a burden and planted a church. Well, the church is about 100, 125 people in the heart of this gypsy village, but by faith they, they put on an outreach dinner, inviting people to come out and enjoy a meal. Uh, the people in the church made it all, and I was the guest speaker. 470 people, this church is about 100, 125, 470 people came to this dinner, and 126 people responded in faith to Jesus in one night. That was just one event, I know, and okay, but I asked, I said, Cornell, what in the world? How did you? He's like, for a month, we got together at 6 a.m. as a church every day. Why are we doing together? Because we believe that when we call on the heart of God for the people who are not in tune with God, God hears our cry and he answers. I, I shared another story, Valentina. We did most of our events in hotels, invited people to meals, and whether it was a ladies' breakfast or a businessman's lunch, uh, I, I was the guest speaker, just sharing the gospel in the nuance of whatever that group is, is all about. And we did one for those in the military and police. And so we had the same wait staff for all of the events. So they heard the gospel seven times, just through different means. Second to last event, Valentina, who is one of the ladies in the wait staff, we had people fill out a card to say what their thoughts were and if they wanted to respond in faith to Jesus. And the cards were on the table, so it wasn't like stand up, walk to the front. It was just tell us your response. So Valentina goes to one of the pastors and says, can I have one of the cards? And she filled out her story, and I ended up talking to her the next day, and she's like just hearing and hearing, hearing all that God has done. Something happened in, in my own soul, and and I know that God is working. She was trying to get words. 
She couldn't even describe it fully. And so we prayed, and I thought, Lord, we came for other people, but God brought the same wait staff. By the end, by the last event, they were like, can we do anything to help? And even the pastors noticed a transformation in the staff after hearing the good news. But to me, the climax, and I posted a photo of it, and all of this is kind of a setup to what we're talking about today. Uh, Aruel, uh, I was doing the final event. It was like 16 events. It's the final one. I'm physically exhausted. And I'm praying in my hotel room two hours beforehand saying, God, this is what I plan on saying. What do you think? This is how I talk to Jesus, you know. And no, that's not it. Okay, Lord, what, what do you want me to share? So I, I decided just last minute to talk about the story of Zacchaeus. Remember from Luke 19, Zacchaeus, who's a prominent business leader who's also corrupt, who Jesus walks up to him, sees him in a tree and says, come, I'm going to eat with you. And so I just start scribbling notes to myself, kind of a basic outline. Think of some testimonies I can share. So we get to the hall, thousands of people, music, all of this. And then one guy's going to give a story before I get up. And my interpreter, Daniel, he's like, do you want to hear exactly what he's saying or just a summary? No, give me, give me exactly. Because he walks up, he's got glasses and a cane. And the pastor leads him to the center of the platform and all the TV cameras are on him and he's just sharing his story. He was blinded in an accident. He's a mechanic seven years prior. And out of that, obviously his life was taken away from him. In that how are you going to fix a car if you can't see? All that to say there's some Christians who invited him to church and then they invited him to an event four years prior at that same venue, that same hall. So he's sharing a story. I'm kind of listening in. And he's like, when I came, I was seated on the floor, but then there were so many people coming. My guide said, maybe we should sit towards the top because there's so many people coming and going. He said, okay. And they walked up to the top, top, top row of this big arena. And Aurel says a guy started talking, and he was American. And he talked about Zacchaeus and how Zacchaeus was up at the top. But Jesus said, I want I want to come. I know you by name. I want to come and eat with you. And it dawned on me. I had been in that arena four years ago. I was the one that Aruel was talking about, talking about Zacchaeus. For, now, again, my memory is really bad. I, A, I don't have that many messages, obviously. If I'm, like, doing the same message four years later... <laughs> like, how, I didn't plan on sharing the story of Zacchaeus is my point. I couldn't remember what I had said. I knew I was there years ago, but again, when you do so many meetings in so many places, it all becomes a bit of a blur. He gives this story about how he wanted to come down and he was afraid to. And so someone um, at the tail end said, hey, are you ready to go? And he was just convicted in his soul. He was like, well, I kind of want to go. But I don't want to go home. I want to go down to the front and I want to give my life to Jesus. And he shared the story. And so I'm flabbergasted in tears. Yes, you get that by now. And I'm like, I can't believe it. Daniel, Daniel was my interpreter four years ago. We were here. And four years ago, God changed this blind man's life for the good. And now he's sharing a story. So basically, I just got up and said, this is the strangest meeting I've ever been a part of. Good opening line. 
I'm like, I was sitting there listening to hear ROL tell the story, and I didn't realize, I knew I had been, been here four years ago, but that was me sharing the story, and he heard the good news of Jesus, so I was like, I'm going to basically fill in the blanks to what ROL uh, didn't tell you, and just gave my message in like five minutes, and then ask people to respond. If you're ready to respond to the love of God and Jesus, why don't you come? And people start coming down. And this is amazing. And then I hear the story at the tail end. One of the pastors was talking to someone, and he said, uh, listen, I'm in IT. I'm not an emotional person. He's like, okay. <laughs> He's like, last night I had a dream. I had a dream. I was in the dark and there was light in that direction, but I couldn't make my way. It was too muddy. But then two men came and came to where I was and pulled me towards the light. And he's like, I'm in IT. I'm not emotional. You know, like he repeated himself. He's like, but then it dawned on me. This blind man said how he was far from God, but he came to know Jesus Christ and then this other guy got up and said, I was the one who told him four years ago. And that dream came to my mind. And I realized they're the two men that God was sending to get me from the darkness into the light. I'm in IT. I'm not into this emotional thing. But I have to believe that God's trying to get my attention. And he responded in faith to Jesus. Look at this. This all happened in one week, my friends. I just want to remind you that the good news is for everyone. It's for everyone. And that's why we talk about it all the time. It's why we're studying Romans. And it's why we're moving towards Easter. The most open, it beats Christmas hands down. Christmas is all about presents and credit card debt. Easter is about chocolate bunnies. Okay, we'll throw that in the mix. But it's also the most pointed of our holidays. And so I want you to think about who you're going to invite, who you're going to bring, not just to fill a seat, but you never know. RUL could be someone that you know, someone who's either physically in a challenge right now, spiritually in a challenge. I just want you to invite as many as you can. Okay, that, that was kind of a what God has done in the last week. Now let's turn the page towards the text and let's look at Romans 7 because we're in the middle of, or towards the end of, I should say, three questions that Paul asks. I'm going to remind you of what happened over the last two weeks. In light of hope, remember Romans 5 through 8 is about the hope of the gospel. We looked at the message and we looked at the heart, what the gospel is. Now, what the gospel produces is hope, right? But then, because Paul hasn't been there, he, he goes sideways. He starts to answer questions people might have. What is Christian hope? What is gospel, good news, hope? And so he asks like rhetorical questions, three of them. The first one we saw was what's the right response to, to God's grace? What's the right response? Well, we're a new people united with Jesus and called to live a new life. So in light of what God has done, you were in Adam, now you're in Jesus. So hope is about the ability to live in a new way. And then the second question you saw last week that Steve taught on was who do you serve? Well, we're not just set free for ourselves. Jesus is our new master and we serve him 
not by following lists of rules, but rather we serve Jesus in the new way of the Holy Spirit. There's an absolutely new transforming power that you and I have. We can follow God because he's given us the Spirit. Now we're going to move on to the third question, and it covers Romans 7, 7 all the way through 25. Let's just start in verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Okay, what's the third question? I'll throw it out there and it'll take the rest of our time just to tease it out. How do we view God's law in light of Jesus? If you're new to the study, hope is an absolute certainty. It's a confidence that what God has says will happen. So those of us who know Jesus, we're not wondering, wishing, fingers crossed, will God do what he says he's going to do? No. The good news of Jesus produces in us a certain confidence. What God said he's going to do to you, or in you, or through you, he absolutely will do it. Now, here's a bit of a challenge, though. Up until Jesus, there's this long thing that we call the Old Testament. You can call it part one of what God had been saying. Jesus flips it up a bit, and now we see it in a new way. But what do we do with it? If we're living in the hope of Jesus, if we're filled with the Holy Spirit, what do I do with two-thirds of the Bible? Because everything before Jesus makes up two-thirds of the book that you have in your hands. Now remember, when I say God's law, I'm not saying the Ten Commandments rules. It's more than that. God's law is God's Torah. God's Torah is God's teaching, His way, His, His giving of what life should be like. So God gives himself. This is how I created you to be. This is how I created you to live. What do we do with all of that? Now, what Paul does is first he goes on a rabbit trail and then he comes back. So I'm going to go on a little bit of rabbit trail, but then we'll call, come back. Two things I want you to see about God's law. Uh, I'm going to give it to you up front and then kind of explain it. Because when we read this, this is flat out confusing. Romans 7 is probably... The end of seven is probably the most confusing and easy to misunderstand part of what Paul is saying. So let me just give you the two. First, God's words are right and good. So the question is, how do you view God's law in light of Jesus? Well, you got to remember, everything God said is right and good. Look at verse seven. What do we say? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law, or God's giving of the teaching that he gave to Moses on the mountain after rescuing Israel from slavery. So in time and at a real sp spot, God gave himself, his words. And so he says, I wouldn't have known what sin was. I would not have known what coveting really was, which is one of the Ten Commandments. If the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. So he sees like, man, the law did something, but it didn't produce anything good. God said, don't covet. Well, my heart is, I like what you have. I want what you have. So the law actually produced, it elevated something within me that was already off. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covenant. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once, I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment 
that was intended to bring me life actually brought death. By the way, if you look at the, the, the giving of the law, God says, if you keep these, you will live. So the law is good. The law is meant to produce life, but he's living in the real world. He's like, yeah, God said, here's the way of life, but it actually enhanced how far I am from God. <laughs> it actually produced in me guilt and a death because I realized I am not in line with God. For sin, verse 11, seizing the opportunity afforded through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy, the commandment is holy, and righteous and Good. How do you view God's law in light of Jesus? You remember, God's words are right. God's words are good. There's nothing wrong with what God has said. This is why, as a church, we don't just read the New Testament. Even though we realize what was said before Jesus needs to be seen in light of Jesus. Jesus said, I didn't come to throw out the law. I came to actually fulfill it. Jesus said, not even the the jot or tittle, not even the period or exclamation point, will be removed from God's law. Everything God said is right and good. Now, in light of Jesus, we need to look back and see it for what it is and isn't. And then we have the Gospels and then we have everything after Jesus that basically interprets the Old Testament and the Gospels in light of Jesus. And it shows us how to live. It's why we're reading Romans. So there's nothing wrong with God, and there's nothing wrong with, like, that's the old, get rid of it. Some communities who love Jesus actually lean that direction. Don't bother with it. That was then. Jesus is now. Well, the problem is the law is good. Look at verse 12. You've got to wrestle with it. The law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. So, all right, that, that much we know. Now, what Paul says next, though, this is pretty much summary. We would, I think most of us say, yeah, God's right. And everything he says is right. And I need to look at my life in light of what he said. Fair enough. That's pretty straightforward. What he says next, though, is pretty tricky to understand. So let's just read 13 through the end. And then I'll give you the second thought. So the first thought is God's law or God's words are right and good. But look at verse 13. Did that which is good then become death to me? Law is good. Did it actually kill me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death. So that through the commandment, sin might be utter, become utterly sinful. Confused yet? It's kind of like wordplay. It gets worse. Verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I'm unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. Which he said just before that we've been set free and we're no longer slaves. Now he says, I'm a slave to sin. I'm confused. I do not understand what I do. I feel that right now. For what I want, for what I want to do, I do not do. What I hate to do, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good and he needs to see a counselor, right? As it is, it is no longer I, myself, who do it. But it's the sin living in me, which, okay, that's just weird. I'm guilty, but it's not me. That's the sin 
living in me. For I know the good that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what's good, but I can't carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, that this I keep on doing. Thank you for repeating yourself, Paul. Do you see why people stop reading the Bible? <laughs> because of texts like this. Now, if, if I do what I do not want to do, it is not no longer I who do it, but it is the sin living in me that does it, which clarifies nothing. Verse 21. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil's right there with me. Now that I get. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. This is, this is the one I think I could relate to. Verse 24. What a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, am a slave, slave to the law of sin. Whew. All right, I was going to chop this up into three different weeks and realize we'll probably lose everyone Everyone's going to start going to sunrise because this is just, this is just like confusion. So we're going to cover it more from a higher level and get the main point. Because this text has been read and understood by wise, Jesus-loving scholars in multiple directions. This is probably the most challenging of everything that Paul has written, period. And so... Because of the way he writes it, and when you study it in the original language, and you try to grasp what he's taking, it could mean various things. Here's what we do know, though. Point number two when it comes to how do you and I interpret God's words in light of Jesus. Second thing is God's words, his law, won't keep us from disobedience. That's the big picture. What Paul's saying here is God's words are right and good. The problem is not God. The problem is not what God has said. Here is the problem. God has given himself what he has said. He's given us words to live by. But those words don't keep us from disobedience. In other words, I have scripture and I know what's right and good. Does reading it alone keep me in the right? Ever read the Bible and do opposite? Hello. That's, this is his challenge. There was a group, the Jewish people that he comes from, that committed themselves to living by Torah, living by the word of God. They made it their goal because God said that there's life in his words. Those who obey his words will live. Here's what they found in practice, though. Knowing what God had said, Paul memorized probably the entire Old Testament. If not, he definitely knew by heart the first five books of the Bible. But it didn't stop his craving to sin. So knowing God's words won't keep us from disobedience. So what Paul teases out here is interesting. I'll just recap what he just said. Verse 14, the law is spiritual, I'm unspiritual. 
I'm a slave to sin. Verse 18, I have the desire to do what's good. I can't carry it out. Verse 20, if I don't do what I want to do, it's no longer I doing it, but the sin living in me. Verse 24, what a wretch that I am. Now, because this is tricky, we have to ask the question, who is the I? Paul says, I, 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 all throughout Romans 7. And you know what? My assumption as a reader is he's talking about himself, right? I, I was, I am. The question is, though, is he talking about himself? Or is something else going on? So, Paul could be talking about himself. If he's talking about himself, he could be talking about himself before he encountered Jesus. I, 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 referring to who he used to be. Or he could be talking about himself right now. As a follower of Jesus, I, but he says I'm sold as a slave to sin. I'm, wait, I was in Adam, I'm now in Jesus. How could I be sold as a slave to sin? How could I be unspiritual? Which simply means, that's not like behavior, that means I lack the Holy Spirit. And God gave him the Holy Spirit. Like, so what is he talking about? Is he talking about his old life? Is he talking about his new life? Or is he telling the story of Scripture in an artistic way, putting himself in the story? Are you confused yet? Yeah. Join the club. There are multiple opinions. Paul's talking about himself before he's a follower of Jesus. He's talking about himself after he's a follower of Jesus. Or he's talking about the entire story of the Bible from Adam forward. I'm going to give you my opinion, but frankly, depending on who you read, you're going to get various opinions. What everyone agrees on is that God's words are right and true, and knowing God's words doesn't guarantee you you're going to follow them. You need something else. So I think Paul is including himself, but he's actually giving us a glimpse of everyone's life before Jesus. In other words, Paul is retelling humanity's story starting with Adam. So he says, I, but you have to think wider. Writers, artists can use personification. They could, they could tell their story. Ever hear the story of the American dream? Someone who moved here and they worked hard and they gained X, Y, Z. Well, it's not just their story. That could be used as the story of opportunity. In the same way, I think Paul's telling the story of Adam. As a matter of fact, if you went line by line, you could see parallels with what happened with Adam and Eve. Remember, Romans 5 through 8 is about the message of hope. So go back to Romans 5, 12. I'll put it on the screen. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. I think what Paul's saying at the end of Romans 7 is it's not disconnected from Romans 5. I think he's just summarizing it and saying, everyone was a mess before Jesus. And so the things that I want to do, I don't do. Adam wanted to please God, but the tempter came and told him another story. And Adam and Eve listened to another story, even though they had God's words, God spoke to them face to face. Knowing what God said did not keep Adam and Eve from sinning. He's telling Adam's story and our story. Romans 5.20, the law was brought in so that the trespass, 
might increase. This is where it gets interesting. Why did God give us his words? If at the beginning God spoke to Adam and Eve and they sinned anyway, why would God go through the trouble on a mountain, 40 days, speak to Moses and give him stuff about how to get rid of mold? If you've read Numbers, if you've read Leviticus, I'm talking like detail, how to live your life. Why would God do that? Now some would think, well, because if we know the truth, we'll live by the truth. What Paul's saying is, oh, no, no, that's not how this works. The more God said, the more we were going to realize how impossible it is to please him. So the giving of the law wasn't as the Jews thought. If you obey the law, you will live. Well, yeah, that's true. The problem is none of us keep the law. The law was given in Paul looking at the whole story of God so that when we see Jesus, the Messiah, we would cry out in desperate hope for him to save because keeping the law is impossible. The power of sin is real. Its stranglehold over our life is real. And if you love Jesus, you know this to be true. There's another pull on your life trying to keep you from the heart of God. And so what he wants us to remember is the law, God's words, God's teaching, is not going to keep us from disobedience. Something else has to happen. So I think he's telling the whole story of Israel here. Remember, Paul was raised a rabbinic Jew. He was a Ph.D. scholar in the Bible. He had spent all of his life dwelling on God's thoughts and wrestling with his sinful heart. So this whole the thing I want to do, I don't do, the thing I don't want to do, I do, I believe he's not just speaking about himself, although he's including himself. He's speaking about all of God's people. We're stuck. We want to honor God, but we don't. What do we do? Verse 21, I think, is key. I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil's right there with me. So they had the Bible and yet dishonored God. In my inner being, I delight in God's law. As a Jew, he memorized it. He meditated on it. He thought about it. But I see another law at work in me, waging against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. I think he's talking about his life before Jesus. And everyone's life before Jesus is, I have a heart to do good. When I hear God's law, something within me says this is right. But there's another thing pulling on me. And what's pulling on me is stronger. Verse 24, what a wretched man I am. I don't think he's talking about his current life. I think he's looking back and saying, this is where I was before Jesus. Why? Why do I think it's past? Who will rescue me? Verse 25, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus. Jesus came and kept the law fully. The law showed us how holy, how completely different God is. And when you see it, you realize, oh, knowing it just makes me feel more guilty. And then you see Jesus who keeps the law completely, who never gets out of line with the heart of God. And I think that the giving of the law reminds us no matter how good you are, you're not good enough. But Jesus has come to deliver us. What am I saying? 
We need more than words. Now, I want to be very careful. We need more than the Bible. I'm not minimizing the Bible. But knowing this book cover to cover will not keep you from sin. Why do I know that? Because that's my story and that's your story. It's our story. So know the Word of God. It's right and good. Just know, knowing the Bible won't keep you from disobedience. What do we need? We need God Himself. So yes, we're a church that has a wonderful view of Scripture. We believe absolutely that it has integrity. We ought to think about it, dwell on it, meditate, memorize it, live it out. Absolutely true. But know this, knowing it's not going to keep you from the other passions in your soul overtaking your life and drawing you away from the heart of God, it's a good step. We need God to come in and make a transformation. And that is the hope of the gospel. God didn't just give us the Bible. He gave us himself. What a wretched man I am. Thanks be to God who delivers us through another Bible verse. No, it's not what he says. Who delivers us through Jesus, the Messiah, our Lord. So the good news is God steps in and does what his words alone won't do. God steps in and in Jesus is the perfect man. So that now I am not perfect, but I can be united with the perfect one. I'm not holy, but I can be united with the perfect one. And Jesus, in giving of himself, can stand in my place and live in the right so that I can now be connected to him and be made holy. I know that's, that's way too much for spring break. That's just... It's just the way it worked out, right? Now, how do I know this is true? Because Romans 7 uses the word spirit, referring to the Holy Spirit, once. Romans 7 uses the word law, or one of the synonyms, 31 times. In Romans 7, the spirit isn't really being talked about much. It's the law, 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 which gets Paul nowhere. But in Romans 8, you're going to see the Spirit at least 21 times. You get a contrast. Life before Jesus. Thank God for Jesus. And now you and I, as Steve said last week, we're called to follow Jesus in the new way of the Holy Spirit. What is the new way of the Holy Spirit? What we did was we timed Romans to lead us to Romans 8 for Easter. We're going to get to the end of Romans 8 for Easter, and we're going to look at like three verses at the end of Romans 8 that summarizes everything we've been talking about for months. And here's why. Leading up to Easter, we want to remind ourselves that the Holy Spirit is the reason I am connected to the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit gives me everything I can and need to live out the heart of God. So we're three weeks to Easter. And Easter reminds us of the real change that has happened in the coming once for all in Jesus Christ. And we know that sin and death was defeated on the cross and in the resurrection. God the Son shows us that life eternal is possible. But more than that, everything in the world has changed. Not just the calendar, you know, B.C. to A.D. It's not just a calendar change. The entire world has changed because in Jesus' coming, he promises his second coming. And now, 
To those who await his second coming, he gives the Holy Spirit. So everything before Jesus was God's people in in love with God, but without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Let me just tell you, you get a better deal. We have a better deal. Because they had the presence of God at the temple. They had Torah. They had God's presence. But they didn't have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit like you and I do. And so going towards Easter, we're remembering by faith in Jesus, we receive the Spirit and the Spirit lives in you. And if God's Spirit dwells in you, you are not living in Romans 7. What a wretch you are. That doesn't mean you don't struggle with sin. Doesn't mean you don't struggle with temptation. Doesn't mean you don't have a bad week, a bad day, a bad month, a bad year. But it means you're not there. You see, you were changed. And you are being changed. And one day you will be changed. And so we celebrate. This week there are hundreds of people, young men and women, old men and women, who have been radically transformed by the good news of Jesus. And their life is different now than it was two weeks ago. That's why we share the good news. Because we believe that this message in and of itself, that the message has the power to change a person's soul and heart. Valentina has the same hope that you and I have. Iroel has the same hope that you and I have. And so what I want us to do today is to celebrate and remember, what has Jesus rescued you from? What has he rescued you from? As Paul's writing Romans, I think he stops in Romans 7, and he looks back at Adam and Israel and his story and says, what a wretch we were, but thanks be to God through Jesus, I'm no longer there. I'm filled with God's presence. I have the Spirit, and I can defeat the power of sin. And I'm going in a whole new direction. And if that's true of you, you have so many reasons to rejoice and worship even with your baggage, even with your stuff, even with your challenges, even with your addictions, let me tell you, you have the Holy Spirit. And so what we want to do is we want to rise up and respond now. Because we are God's people filled with God's Spirit. We want to return to Jesus' praise. And also, can I just say this? Romans 8 is coming. And it talks about there being no condemnation and freedom and power. As we have been saved by God, Can I just remind you, you're not just someone who has been rescued, but you're an ambassador. You're someone who can speak of God's salvation. If Jesus has done anything in your world this week, tell someone about it. Let someone know. Don't hide it. Don't hoard it. Let it out. And just like what happened in Seville, I pray it happens here in Hillsborough and all over 26 West, Hillsborough and Banks and Beaverton and Cornelius and all of Portland, that all across our part of God's world, we will see a revolution of people turning to Jesus. That's our prayer. And that's why we worship and pray. Why don't you stand on your feet and let's give God the thanks that's due His name. Lord, we love you. And now we worship you for who you are. In a bit we go to the bread and cup and remember your sacrifice, your death, your resurrection. And now we live as your renewed people filled with your very presence. Holy Spirit, you are in us and with us and around us. Now empower us to live as your people, to say no to sin and say yes to you. Where we need grace, give it, Holy Spirit of God. Where we need forgiveness, bring it, Holy Spirit of God. 
Where we need conviction about changes we need to make, come Holy Spirit of God.